1: Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova-Said, I'm a host of New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm speaking today with Olena Palko and Konstantin Adeliano, editors of Making Ukraine, Negotiating, Contesting, and Drawing the Borders in the 20th Century, published by McGill's University Press in 2022. Olena Palko is currently Leverhulme Early Career Fellow in the Department of History, Classics, and Archaeology at uh, Berberk University of London. Starting in August 2022, she will be an assistant professor at the Department of History, University of Basel, working on her new research project, Red Tower of Babel, Soviet Minorities Experiment in Interwar Ukraine, funded by the Swiss National uh, Science Foundation. Her research interests lie in the field of early Soviet cultural history and the interwar history of Eastern Europe. She was awarded her PhD from the University of East Anglia in 2017 and held research fellowships at Free University and Basel University. She's the author of Making Ukraine, Literature and Cultural Politics under Lenin and Stalin. Constantin Adelianu is the professor of modern Romanian history at the Department of History, Philosophy and Sociology of the Lower Danube University of Galati, where he teaches courses on the 19th century Romanian history and the economic development of the Danubian and Black Sea areas during the 19th and 20th centuries. During the past years, Constantin has been a long term fellow of the New Europe College and Institute for Advanced Study in Bucharest, where he coordinates the Pontica Magna Fellowship Program. His books include International Trade and Diplomacy at the Lower Danube, the Sulina Question and the Economic Premises of the Crimea War 1829-1853, and the European Commission of the Danube 1856-1948, an experiment in international administration. Hello, Elena and Konstantin. Congratulations on this volume that was just recently published. Uh, well, since uh, our uh, conversation will be about maps and uh, borders, I would like with this question about maps. So what is a map for a historian and who is a cartographer for, um, in the process of history writing, in your opinion?
0: Constantine, would you like to start? I think uh, you have more expertise with maps, and then I can talk a little bit more if uh, you know as as a, as it is applied to Ukraine.
2: Okay, okay, uh, it's uh, it's always a relevant question to look at how reality is uh, is drawn on maps and what maps mean for for history uh, writing and for history making. And our own project also involved uh, map making and uh, and looking at maps and looking at uh, what maps teaches us about about the make the making of the Ukrainian nation and about the making of the um, Ukrainian uh, state. There's a there's a very lengthy historiography related to maps, and in uh, in this book that was just published, there's a lot on map makers and the importance of maps. And and the book itself includes about 30 maps that were drawn by Ukrainian cartographer. And it's always a very difficult challenge to make maps of such a diverse uh, region and such a contested region. Uh, it's not only about Ukraine, but it's about Eastern Europe and how do we play with maps and what it means to, to, for example, uh, put labels on on maps and and um, that's 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 a that's a very um, interesting um, uh, element and in in fact in in um, in my own research which is uh, about the the border along the Lower Danube, I started from maps and from, from how in the post-Crimean war context in, in the mid-19th century, uh, maps uh, started to appear and they were used as instruments in order to draw borders and, to, uh, uh, and they were in fact instruments to create new realities. So, the, as, as some sort of preliminary conclusion, maps are not objective uh, elements that that uh, describe uh, realities, but they are instruments. It really matters who draws a map, and it really matters uh, how maps are used. And in this book, you will see in several chapters discussions about map makers and the role of maps in, in making modern states.
0: I would perhaps also add that, um, indeed I completely agree with uh, Konstantin, it's important to know uh, or to look at uh, those people who draw maps. But um, in the case of Ukraine, it's also important to look at who sponsors those maps, who sponsors the, the science and the experts. Because in, in uh, this book mainly deals with the interval period, um although there are chapters that obviously deal with the uh, post war period up to 1954 when when uh, Crimea became part of Ukraine but the key um the key part of the book is the interval period this is the period when when a lot of uh, new nation states appeared right and every every government was uh, sponsoring um cartographic research ethnographic research map uh, making and so on and so on but when we think about uh, the period of uh, 1917 1921, one the crucial period for drawing and agreeing borders in East Central Europe, Ukraine didn't have a state of its own, or at least it didn't have a stable government of its own, right? And then we have this question, so who uh, creates, who sponsors, who conceives the map for the people who don't have agency, right, who don't have a government, who don't have, um, basically, who don't have the representation, official representation on the international scale, same as other countries as Romania, Poland, Czechoslovakia and so on and so on, and this is why it's so so interesting to see how this. It was not only the process of drawing, but also negotiating, and there is this process of hierarchy: who has more agency to define the border, and basically who will be listened to if we think of this international forum.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and you also mentioned uh, makers of uh, maps, but uh, I also would like to follow up on that and ask who were the consumers of those maps? Because, well, today everyone has access to maps. I mean, everyone who wants to have access to, to, to maps. But uh, let's say the beginning of the 20th century, or as uh, Constantine mentioned, his research uh, focuses on the 19th century. Who were the consumers of these maps in the 19th century?
2: If I, if I may reply to this question, there are uh, two sorts of Uh consumers and uh, if we look at um, the Ukrainian case um, we have those who look at maps uh, with expertise in mind so for example in several chapters in this volume there are discussions about uh, the role of maps during the um, Paris Peace Conference after the first World War, when there was a a sort of a real battle of maps with all the the nations in Eastern Europe, bringing their own uh, maps and bringing their own experts and trying to use this sort of maps in order to claim um, uh, the possession of different territories. Ukraine uh, and the Ukrainian delegates in Paris were among a, a very large cohort of such people showing maps and claiming, based on those maps, different territories. But we also show, and in some, some chapters in, in this book, we see how nations are created by looking at maps, and how important maps uh, in um, published in uh, uh, different journals, in different uh, in different books, how they contributed to nation-making, and to give him some sort of territorial expression to the national idea, and 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 in um, that that was the case for Ukraine, we have the first maps of the Ukrainian nation. Well, well, before there was a Ukrainian state, and this, of course, we we have in several chapters mentions of uh, Stefan Rutnitsky, who is really. Uh, 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 vital for the for the making of the Ukrainian uh, state, uh, as, as, as this sort of um, giving an image to the nation, this sort of territorial uh, extension of the Ukrainian nation. Uh,
1: Olena, yeah? would you like uh, would you like to make a comment on those consumers of maps um, uh, during the time period that you specialize in? Yeah, I was. Um actually
0: um, yeah it's, uh, we we have uh, two main uh, sort of cartographers or two main maps that reappear uh, in 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 several chapters in the book the one of them is of course stefan rudnitsky as and Konstantin already Konstantin already spoke about him but it's interesting that indeed uh, those people were creating maps um, There were like two of, uh, two objectives in mind the first one was to create so to say, a textbook, right, for the Ukrainian consumer. But at the same time, during the First World War, Stepan Rudnitsky, for instance, he was um, he was part of the Austro-Hungary. Earlier, he was in Lviv, so he was uh, it was he was in occupation and so on and so forth. So he was preparing maps for an external consumer to explain where Ukraine was, who were those people, what are their territorial claims and imaginations, right? So it's it's this it's it's a Dual objective, on the one hand, to tell these people who are on this territory that you are one nation, that this is the extent of your territory, and this is how you should sort of imagine yourself. But at the same time, this is the task to explain to the international audience, the international observer, that this is the nation and these are the borders, and they should have the right for those borders. Mm-hmm. But if we think about uh, earlier maps in um in the introduction, especially, we speak of the 1871 uh, map of the Little Russian. Um, uh, I think it was called of the uh, of the South Russian vernacular. Uh, this was the first map that basically draw the consistent border across uh, two, two, or even three empires. Um, of those like kind of the language that would later become known as Ukrainian and um this was map of the, the this map of the late uh, 19th century it was also uh, created for the external consumer uh, we can say because this was the agency of those experts they were um the, the, they represented the empire but at the same time they showed the empire the imperial authorities that this is something separate this, this is not just one nation but there is a have like a group of people that have, you know, like they they have a a different dialect. So they are separate. They are different. Mm -hmm. And, And this is, I think, is important. But I think at this time, it's the external consumer who was more important than the internal consumer, especially when we speak of the 19th
1: century. So, um, since uh, you already touched upon Ukraine, uh, what do Ukraine's borders uh, result from? And as you mentioned, and it's also mentioned in the introduction, that um, uh, in the 19th century there was no state as Ukraine. But on the other hand, um, in cultural and collective memory, the term Ukraine was quite viable uh, and although this term didn't, wasn't used right uh, on some official level uh, by the uh, Russian Empire, this term still existed. Um, so. There is some sort of tension here, so I would like to have you comment on that, uh, as well as on this term, Malorossia, right? Um, in, in your book, you uh, use the term uh, uh, Little Russia, right? Um, is this some sort of a convention still to use this term, or maybe we can uh, somehow reconsider, right, this, this term uh, for cultural purposes or for historical purposes? Just just a thought and maybe just your, uh, your comment on that.
0: Well, i think i'll uh, i'll start with this concept of of uh, uh, because um, this was just a um, this is the concept to show that uh, those people who spoke the so-called malarussian uh, dialect or vernacular were part of a bigger uh, nation the, the great russian nation and they were uh, like this that consisted of great russians Little Russians, or, or, or Malarose, and white Russians. And those were the three components of one great Russian people. And this is the concept that started to um, be um, kind of conceived, but as well popularized also with the in the 19th century, right? When, when the idea was to create uh, this imperial history, imperial narrative, uh, the narrative of unity that all those parts of the empire, they, they, they were the, the core of the empire and they were inseparable. And this is, I think, what is, um, what we still have this imperial legacy. Uh, we can see it right, when we think about, when we listen to any Russian propagandists, when they say that the language doesn't exist, um, that, uh, you know, like all the pejorative names they use against Ukrainians and their language and so on and so on. So this is this uh, continuity of uh, imperial legacy, of not seeing Ukrainians as a separate nation. Uh, But I think Konstantin can speak of this better, but Ukrainians, right, this is not this is this is not an exception. When we look at the um, second half of the 19th century, all those uh, people in East Central Russia, or sorry, in East Central Europe, they were uh, becoming uh, sort of separate people. This is the period of very um, active um, process of, of, of nation making. This is the period of the rise of nationalism, and so on and so on. So we can say that, that by the early um, 20th century, Ukrainians, as you say, there was a legacy of, of Ukraine, of Ukrainian culture. There was Ukrainian literature, right, and so on and so on. So this was not just a concept that appeared in 1991. There was a foundation for it, and it was very similar to to, to those processes in East Central Europe. It's just that it was hindered by the empire, by a much stronger empire than in the case of of uh, Romania, Poland, Czechoslovakia, and other countries in in um, in, in Central Europe. That basically in 1919. Could break away from the empire. Unfortunately, um, the attempts of Ukrainian independence um, did, were not successful. Right, and Ukraine became part of another uh, unity of the of, of the Soviet Union and was not independent in deciding its own course. and And this is the problem. But if we compare the stand where Ukrainians were in, say, mid nineteenth century, I don't think we were that much different. From um, other uh,
2: people in the region. I would, I would just add to what Olena is saying. It's the the making of the Ukrainian nation in the 19th century is very similar to what happens in in all in in this entire inter-imperial borderland. It, it's the same in Romania, in Bulgaria, in in Greece, in. Uh, uh, Czechia, Slovakia, and so on. It's, it's the same pattern that we see, and Ukraine as as a, as a name is, a, is, is used in the 19th century, uh, and it's a very convenient term for the, for the founding uh, uh, fathers of the Ukrainian nation to use this, this concept as a way of in, embracing uh, people that lived along uh, a large region, uh, It's it's the same also for all these nations. They are not um, uh, very standardized in terms of language, in terms of identity, in terms of culture. And what we see in the 19th century, it's similar for the Ukrainian nation, it's for the Romanian one, it's for the the Serbian one, and and so on. And it's just natural that such processes start in some imperial capitals, in Vienna, uh, in. Saint Petersburg, perhaps it's it's where the the, the national elites uh, start from. Um, but uh, the, the starting from what you are asking, Ukraine in the in the 19th century is widely used. It's used, yes. Perhaps uh, not. It's not always very consistently used, but it's the same for all nations in the in the region. That I I, I wouldn't say there's anything particularly in the case of ukraine if i compare its situation with uh, the other nations in the in the region
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, uh, well, uh, although you say that it's not quite unique, right, for the Ukrainian case, but um, I believe that uh, Ukraine is some sort of a uh, region that has been dominated for for an extensive period of time by Russo-centric narratives. And for this reason, maybe um, this name Ukraine is not widely used or is somehow distorted in in many cases. And um, I I would also say that this translation into English is Probably not the best one, little Ukrainians or great Ukrainians. I believe um, Rory Feenan was using or was suggesting a uh, uh, a different term like minor Russia and major Russia, and maybe those terms would somehow offer a different perspective.
2: I, uh, personally, I don't like such names,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I I I would say that uh, it's important to. Uh, not identify this uh, the ukrainian nation uh as as it a name that alludes to something russian mm-hmm. or because because this tends tends to create uh, identity problems mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that's why starting from the question before all these malo russians and and so on th- these were used in the 19th century but they were part of the the problem in how historians tend to interpret such uh, names.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: They, they they are um, associated to a certain view on on uh, some sort of national hierarchies, and and I I would say that it's but it's just my personal view. So uh, Ukrainian is uh, definitely a better
1: solution <laughs> yes when, when when the name right when the name or when the translation contains the uh, this component ukraine or ukrainians right
2: mm-hmm.
1: yes yeah o- olena i just wanted um
0: to add something to the question because you started with the question so who who uh, basically where the borders came from who agreed on those borders and then uh, and then we switched to this uh the discussion of of uh, the concept of Ukraine versus uh, Malarossia and so on. But I think this is also what makes the Ukrainian case interesting, interesting yet resembling East Central Europe. That uh, this is what we, uh, Konstantin and I, spoke about when the war broke out and we were asked to write some, uh, you know, some blogs about our book. That it's surprising that we are, we are sort of trapped in this Russian narrative that we need to debunk those myths about uh, the soviet uh, i don't know the Bolsheviks creating russia that you know lenin uh, created russia stalin added uh, you know the western ukraine and khrushchev added um, crimea and so on and so on and we are basically trapped in this and forced to 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 work within the same paradigm but if you look at ukraine um in those crucial years in the interval period ukraine same as any other countries was a result of international agreement. It's not only Russia that, or the kind of the, the government in Saint Petersburg or uh, later in Moscow, who agreed on the border. But this is the agreement of the great powers, and it was the same. It's the same process for other um, states in the region. Yes, fortunately, they had more agency. Ukrainians, unfortunately, didn't have as much agency. But the process of those board, the drawing the borders and negotiating the borders was very similar, and I think this is. Um, this is this is what we forget, and especially now uh, with the um, with the start of this um, uh, fully fledged war on Ukraine, when uh, there is so much Russian propaganda, and we are just forced to work within, you know, kind of trying to engage with the propaganda instead of thinking what makes Ukraine. Different, not a part of Russia. Rather than explaining why we shouldn't think of it as part of Russia, and this is what Konstantin says: if we use this vocabulary, we are trapped. We need to in- invent a new vocabulary and showing how Ukraine was part of at the same time the agreement of the of the big three, right? How uh, how much um, how much of it, like of the Ukrainian borders, it was a result of I don't know, Winston Churchill's thinking and geopolitics. How much it was of uh, uh, you know, the, the American and and, and the the um, British agreement and interest and so on and so on. And I think this is what we tend to forget, just focusing on the Russian side. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't the case. And and this is, I think, what we need to, with this book, what we need to, to, to highlight. Then um, this is not only about Russia, Ukraine. This is about the Soviet Union and other great powers. Mm-hmm. And this is the same as other countries in the region. And I think this is very beneficial that we have, Authors from um, different uh, different countries, because they already they approach this topic of the making the drawing of Ukrainian uh, borders from very different perspective, right? They don't have this Russocentric uh, perspective where they try to to explain why it was or wasn't Russia. They they it's not that they don't care about the Russian counterpart. They do, but they know that there were other actors at play, and they look at those other actors and they bring them into discussion. And I think this is this is what is important that that with this book we are also trying to break this pro-Russian um, narrative and 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 bring other actors, other interests, other geopolitical concepts uh, into play and into discussion.
2: Yeah, just to add that I fully agree that we need to have a different vocabulary uh, because because of um, um, Russian as a lingua franca uh, in in. Other parts of Europe, uh, people tend to look at Ukrainians, uh, Moldovans, uh, Belarusians, and so on, and to just name them Russians. And it, that, that's still a common mistake in Romania, and it's the same probably in other parts of of, of Europe. And we need to uh, st- stress as 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 um, um, like powerful as possible that, that it, it's not and it's not that, that there's a different nation that has a history that goes back beyond the um, Russian state and the Russian empire and so on. And this narrative uh, has to to be made as clear as possible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we hope the, the book contributes to making very Clear that that Ukraine as a as a state is not the is some some sort of gift or some sort of a, as a Putin was saying some sort of mistake of the Bolsheviks and of Lenin and and, and so on. it's a more complex process that that resulted in in the, the the state of Ukraine and this is what this book shows how complicated this process was, and how similar it is to the making of other Eastern European states. Mm -hmm. It's about the First World War, the Second World War, the the dissolution of the Soviet Empire and so on.
1: Yeah, uh, yes. I, I believe I believe there was some academic discussion of how we can or we should um, refer to Ukraine that was uh, under the Russian Empire. But unfortunately, it was a couple of even, probably not even years but decades ago. But unfortunately, that discussion went unnoticed. But hopefully, with your book, right now we um, uh, pay attention to terminology again because apparently terminology does does matter. Um, it. I would like to combine two questions in my next uh, question. So, um, in the introduction, it is mentioned that there is some tension between territory and people. Uh, and you already um, brought up uh, Stepan Rudnitsky and his approach to uh, drawing maps and to seeing right uh, a nation. And uh, I would like to... Um, um, cite uh, a quote um, uh, from your book, from the introduction part, um, when you uh, talk about Rudnitsky's perspective. Uh, this reflected how his definition of Ukraine's territorial integrity shifted as he moved beyond mere ethnography to include those regions of quote essential political and economic significance, end of quotes, such as Kuban, Crimea, and Bessarabia. Well,
0: um... Yes, indeed. It's uh, it's an interesting transformation with um, Rudnitsky, but at the same time, uh, this also reflects the changes of uh, the then Ukrainian government in plural, right? How they start to uh, conceive Ukraine, the territory they uh, want to uh, control and so on and so on, how they at some point incorporated Crimea as well. And how later on, even the the early Soviet government, how they laid Ukrainian Soviet government, how they laid claims on uh, Kuban and Voronezh, and um, in you know those those areas bordering, um, uh, like kind of the borderline between uh, Russia and Ukraine, and this is, the, but I think it's 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 they do still use ethnography, but. From the political they, they politicize it, they ma- manipulate ethnography because it's very easy. It's, it's how to explain it. it's just how do you interpret numbers, right? It's always there, obviously, there are Ukrainians in, in Kuban, but this is how you present the numbers to say whether it should be part of Ukraine or it shouldn't be a part of Ukraine, and this is how this process of uh, uh politicizing uh, ethnography it was this is the process of the early 1920s and the 19 and and perhaps later on as well it's just that uh, we see how this uh, it was also the struggle for control not only on the territory but of ukraine itself because if we think about the ukrainian uh, soviet ukrainian government in the early 1920s they were trying to um, present themselves as an equal to the government in Russia. So if they have territorial claims, right, it means that it's not necessarily that they want to join those country, those lands, but it means that they control the country and they like the kind of the territory of Ukraine and they are equal partner with the Russian government in Moscow who also have their own territorial claims. So it was also this, this balance, the equality issue that... Um, What's going on in the early 1920s, and I think this is what also kind of referring back to our our uh, early discussions, This is why we are not writing a book about the formation of the Western Soviet border, right? Because we we ask we really with this volume we highlight the agency of the Ukrainian um, kind of part, like the Ukrainian government. It's it's hard to say government because there are different governments in in a different time. But if we think about the uh, the longest period of time uh, covered in the book, this is the the early Soviet uh, Ukraine. The Ukrainian Soviet government really had enough authority to compete with the Russian uh, government in many many questions. Uh, it was not only the question of of, of Kuban and Voronezh, but also the question of the formation of the uh, Moldovan Autonomous Soviet uh, Republic, which Konstantin. Can tell tell you more about is like how they uh, realized that this desire of the central government to create, you know, a separate uh, autonomous republic within the borders of Ukraine, how it would diminish their control over the territory. So they opposed it, and you can see in the 1920s this back and forth where should Moldovan autonomous republic be, how it should be formed, how it should be governed, and so on and so on. So it really highlights the. Um, the strengths of the Ukrainian lobby at the time, and and shifts us away from this perspective that is just a creation by external forces. But perhaps Konstantin, you want to add something?
2: Yeah, yeah, I wanted to say that there's uh, you you combined the two questions, saying that uh, about territory and all, all these sorts of disputes, and this is always the case when 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 look at the. Uh, context of the First World War, and especially the, the last years of, of the uh, of the war and the dissolution of, of Europe's empires, there's always um, uh, such contested uh, territorial issues. And what you are also saying about Rutnitsky, it's also a, 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 a sort of a, a maturing from a geographer to more like someone having the sorts of a statesman, looking at uh, not only at ethnography, which is important, but it, it was very difficult just to just to uh, draw borders, looking only at ethnography. It's very complicated. In all these um, uh, mixed regions, it's extremely it's impossible just to to. Uh, only follow uh, an ethnographic uh, line. And his mentioning of essential political and economic significance, uh, to me at least, shows how he was interested also in the viability of the Ukrainian state. There were many discussions at the the time, at the end of the First World War. The Ukrainian government or governments, um, uh, they, they had problems. There were different forces they were fighting against, and this is also how Rutnitsky imagines uh, 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 the, the viability of the state. There are different regions that are essential to making uh, Ukrainian state viable, and and we see that if we if we look at the territories he mentioned or he mentioned, they are viable. Today, if we if we look at how important this Black Sea coast is for for Ukraine as a state, we we understand that uh, his political thought was uh, as mature as his scholarly thought. I I, I would say. <laughs>
1: Would you talk a little bit about the structure of the book? Um, maybe in more details about specific um, essays and articles that you decided to include in order to construct uh, this volume.
0: Perhaps I, w- I, w- I would start. Um, so our intention, we uh, we conceived this project back in 2019. And our idea was to... Uh, put together a puzzle that is Ukraine, mm-hmm. those uh, all the neighbors, uh, Ukraine and its neighbors, and how all these parts, how all these aspects of borders, how they were uh, basically negotiated, drawn and, and came into being. And this was an opportunity, but at the same time, a constraint because it was like we wanted to, on the, on the one hand, obviously, we have we have this objective to be comprehensive, but at the same time, um sometimes it was hard to find a scholar who was able to write a chapter on this particular aspect of border right especially mm-hmm. it was difficult in the case of ukrainian-russian border and given having this intention in mind we couldn't just leave it out right so it's it, at some point it was perhaps took, took a bit longer because we needed really to to uh, complete the puzzle right to find the author for for each chapter um but the book uh it's it's split into three parts. The first part uh, looks at um, international agreements and treaties that uh, that basically resulted in redrawing of Ukrainian uh, of, of the border of Ukraine. And here we have four essays. Um, essay is the first essay by Borislav Chernov. He looks at um, the negotiations at the Brus Brusilov Peace Conference and how it resulted in the redrawing or, or, or kind of the agreement on the on ukraine's western border uh, during the uh, the first world war uh, then we have uh, the chapter by, by Elzbieta Kaczynska, who looks at the co- uh, competing claims of ukraine of the ukrainian and polish delegation at the paris peace conference is uh, 1919 next chapter is by Jan bruski who um looked at the um uh, uh, treaty of Riga. This is the peace uh, treaty between uh, the Soviet Russia, Soviet Ukraine and uh, Poland in 1921. And lastly uh, Damian uh, Markovsky he looked at the uh, the agreement between uh, the big three during the uh, Second World War. And uh, basically his chapter considers um, territorial agreements and changes uh, from the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in, in uh, 1939 to uh, the agreements up to 1952, when there were some uh, border shifts between Poland and Ukraine, um, uh, already kind of the, the socialist Poland and Soviet Ukraine. Um, the second part of the book um, looks at the establishing the borders of the, between the Soviet republics, and here we start uh, with Dorota Michaluk's chapter on uh, uh, Belarusian-Ukrainian border. Although this chapter uh, it looks at the negotiations in 1918. So technically, it was the negotiations between the Ukrainian People's Republic and the Belarusian People's Republic. But Dorota makes a very um, interesting argument, which which never occurred to me before, that uh, ukrainian uh, belarusian border is one of the oldest borders in Europe because it existed unchanged since uh, 19, uh, 1918. Mm. Um, then Stefan Rindlinsbacher here looks at the uh, contested lines um, between Russia and Ukraine, and how this border uh, was negotiated and uh, changed multiple times uh, during the 1920s. Um, then we have a separate chapter on the formation of the Ukrainian-Moldovan border during the interwar and wartime years by Alexander Voronovici. And I already kind of mentioned this the, was the formation of the Moldovan Autonomous Soviet Republic, and then um, the uh, Moldovan uh, separate uh, Moldovan Republic. And lastly, Austin Sharon looks at the transfer of Crimea in 1954, discussing whether it was, um, you know, a gift or kind of the the the, the practical uh, consideration be, behind this transfer. And lastly, this is the third section that looks at the uh, formation of the of Ukraine's western border. It uh, comprised three chapters. So the first chapter is by Serhiy uh, Ladeshuk, who looked at the formation of the Polish-Ukrainian border in Volynia in 1918-21 this was also the period when when Volenia changed hands a few times from being a polish oh sorry an imperial russian imperial uh, province split later on between poland and ukraine uh, yaroslav Kowalchuk uh, looks at uh, transcarpathia and uh, those um, changes uh, at the end of the second world war in 1944-45 and constantin adalaru looks at the formation of the romanian ukrainian uh, and Moldovan border at, uh, in the, in the uh, Danube uh, region. And I also wanted to mention the conclusion by Tatiana Zhuzhenko, a renowned scholar of, um, of Ukraine and, and of Ukrainian-Russian uh, border and uh your conclusion this concluding essay uh, looks at the making and unmaking of the ukrainian russian border since uh, 1991 she obviously she finished uh, just after 2014 showing how um, how those events uh, of 2014 they basically um, yeah they became the unmaking mm-hmm. of what was quite a successful story since 1991 and what we witnessed today is, is a further proof of how this unmaking, what it can lead to.
2: Yeah, If I, if I may uh, add to these uh, 12 chapters in the three parts that Olena mentioned, there's also a foreword by Professor Uri Schmidt from the University of St. Gallen, a very interesting read and also important for us because the university of San Gallen the center for culture and governance in Europe they have been supporting us in uh, in uh, um, like having this book and there's also an introduction by Olena firstly and, my, and myself a bit um, on on the um history before the making of the borders of the Ukrainian state. Um, But I I would like to mention a different thing. Like I I was reading before this meeting today, I was uh, reading Tatiana's uh, chapter, the the last chapter in in the book, some sort of um, conclusions and really ominous, I I would say, and I would advise everyone to read this chapter because she makes it very clear how the the past 30 years have been a period of um, a successful story, if we want to look at it from this perspective, but also some some sort of um, um, announcement. That there are problems in there, and that Ukraine should behave in order to uh, preserve the the integrity of its territory. And it's really it's really interesting to to look at what she says in the in uh, in this chapter. And in all the chapters, and this is also a very important contribution of this volume to see how Ukraine, as as a as, as a state, is uh, the result of equally. Um, great power politics and all this uh, and all these uh, important diplomatic events in Paris, then uh, after the First World War, then after the Second World War. Um, but it's not only about great power politics. And, and it's uh, the case in the chapters of Jaroslav uh, of, uh, Kovalchuk or also Stefan Ringlisbacher. They show that, that the agency of smaller communities is also important. It's uh, how exactly the border looks like. It was also decided in uh, other places, not only in Paris or in Moscow, or in, yeah, uh, but also in uh, Transcarpatia or in uh, Bessarabia. And, and, and that's uh, really interesting to, to see how borders are the r- result of processes happening over larger, surfaces not only in some capitals and in some uh, critical junctures but but it's it's important to also look at all these sm- smaller actors that shaped uh, the the border
1: mm-hmm. well as um mike including um question i would like to uh, go back to the beginning of our uh, conversation and when we started with this uh, idea about ukraine in the 19th century as an entity that didn't have its own territory as we um, tend to think uh, about but I, I believe that still today um we kind of struggle uh with the notion of how to talk about ukraine of the 19th century or of the 18th century especially if we are not historians for instance or we are not geographers so uh what would what would your recommendation be uh, for for this conversation about Ukraine of the 19th uh, century because uh, as we know after the uh, uh, full scale um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, many specialists are trying to reconsider their approaches to Russia and to Ukraine as well or to include Ukraine into this conversation in a more engaging way I would say but many tend to say maybe it's quite naive but still many tend to say well Ukraine didn't exist as a state in the 19th century, so how can we talk about Ukraine, then, if it was part of the Russian Empire? So your recommendation and your suggestion to um, opinions like this.
0: I think uh, one should also remember that uh, part of what is today Ukraine was was, uh, was in the Austro-Hungary, right? And, and then in Poland. So if we only uh, limit Ukraine to the sniper Ukraine, what is called to this, uh, the part that was part of the Russian Empire, we, we sort of distort, right, history. Because there is an important uh, historical, um, de- there are important historical developments which were taking place in uh, Eastern uh, Galicia or in, in the Bessarabia or in, in what is now Chernitsi and so on and so on. It's, it's just important to bring those parts also into discussion, not to forget that Ukraine is, has not, that Ukraine was not only part of the Russian Empire, but also actually others and mm-hmm. other empires. But um, it's a good question indeed um, but we can just say, and this is what we uh, mentioned earlier, this was a very similar process to a process to other uh, countries and nations in East Central Europe. There was no Romania in uh, the 19th century. There was no Czechoslov- Czechia or Slovakia. There was no Poland. I, the, the case of Poland is perhaps the most telling. There was no Poland since uh, the early um, or, or the late uh, 18th century or the early 19th, uh, 19th century. So, what Shall we not speak of Poland at all? It's just the problem is that um, Ukraine doesn't yet have enough agency and lobby in the scholarly community, to explain that um, what was happening in the past is is not exceptional, is nothing unique. So, if we can speak of other countries in the region as full members or parts of the European history and narrative, why cannot we speak of Ukraine? And this is something that uh, uh, we as and the scholars of Ukraine, of you know, Ukrainian studies, should work towards. Mm-hmm. But it's very good that uh, Konstantin, who, who is not a Ukrainian specialist, also joins this conversation.
2: Yeah, uh, that's that's a <laughs> that's a quality. <laughs> that's a, uh, I also wanted to mention that it's, it's good to always look at uh, some sort of comparative history, mm-hmm. and and to see. As Olena was saying, all states in the region, they they were were created as nation-states in the 19th century and in the the 20th century. Uh, So it's really important to put Ukraine into uh, the geographical context and to see how similar it is to... And and I I wanted to say that um, the only book on the history of Ukraine, that it's uh, available in uh, Romanian translation, is um, Serhii uh, Plochni, uh, The Gates of Europe. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that, that's the only book um, available for a Romanian reader. And if you read this book, you, you will see Exactly the same narrative as for the history of Romania. Romania was also established in the 19th century, and it got unified after the First World War with parts that were in the um, Habsburg Empire, in the Ottoman Empire, in the Russian Empire. So it's it's a, it's a similar it's a similar story, and it's important to have this comparative perspective and to see. It, but there's, in there's a uh, let's say a delay of some decades between the making of all these uh, nation states in Central and Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. That's the that that's the only difference, and they follow from uh, uh, Greece. It was uh, the first country in uh, the the first uh, uh, nation state in southeastern Europe that was established in, in early 19th century and then there's a, uh, there's a, a wave of, uh, of new nation uh, nation states emerging and, and so on. So that's the, the first thing that I, I would say. It's important to have comparative perspectives. The second one, uh, and we mentioned this a bit earlier, is to look at terminology. And it's really important, and I said it today, and we all said it today several times. I think it's uh, important to get rid of this, for example, Russian empire. Because if we keep using this term, Russian empire, we might uh, show some sort of hierarchy, but it also creates some, some sort of logic in relation to the territory that the empire or uh, this Novorossiya project that Russia uses today—it's uh, um, uh, its good to uh, go beyond such. And perhaps there are discussions in Ukrainian studies about this, but the the example of the um, Ottoman Empire or the Habsburg Empire. So going beyond some some sort of um, uh, having in the in the in the, in the name. This, uh, uh, which is politicized, which which is used as some sort of imperial tool. Even even now, it's important to get rid of such concepts. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I what I think. Uh, uh, sorry,
0: sorry, I just say that uh, there are indeed um, other ways of uh, naming the empires, Romanov
2: Empire. Yes,
0: yes. And I, then I, I, This is the, the the solution to what you
2: are saying. Yeah, I, I think the Romanov empire is a, is a better way mm-hmm. of not giving it some sort of uh, ethnic character, which it, which it did not have, and which is used mm-hmm. in order to um, have imperial claims by by those who uh, lead Russia today. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I would say that it's really important uh, to uh, have some sort of... Um, and, and one of the contributions of this book is that it, it brings together scholars from different countries, from different academic traditions, and it's really important, and this has been been done in Eastern Europe and in Western Europe, also to look at uh, all these um, uh, shared histories that we have. Romanian-Ukrainian, Polish-Ukrainian, Belarusian-Ukrainian, and, and, and there are there are all these sorts of uh, uh, disputes that still exist today but they they are they are solved through discussions and through cooperation also between historians and so on and and i would say this is uh, an important uh, contribution of this book that it brings together people from many countries uh, living in other many countries and working for different institutions from Kiev, but also in Russia, in St. Petersburg, or in the US, and so on.
1: Yeah. uh, Thank you. Thank you, Konstantin. And yes, um, it's important to remember. As long as we have this opportunity for debates and for discussions, there is some hope for solving some contested issues. But as 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 soon as we don't have those opportunities, well, to somehow even uh, start a conversation about contestations, I think it's um, it's very problematic. But uh, I'm really surprised by that. Detail that you brought up that there is only one uh, translation uh, of uh, Sergi uh book uh, into Romanian and I think uh, it's a sign that uh, translators have a lot to do uh, not only in terms of uh, English translations but in terms of translations into other languages as well which is as important as have translations uh, in English. Well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Elena and thank you so much, Constantine, for your work work and for your research and for uh making this book uh, available to uh, audiences and uh i believe uh it really um draws attention to ukraine as an agent and it gives ukraine some agency uh and also contributes to decolonizing this perspective on ukraine as something that well just uh, wasn't quite important right to consider when the borders were drawn or made um, Thank you. Thank you for for this very um, uh, insightful conversation today. Thank you, Natalia, for inviting you.
2: Thank you, Natalia. Have a nice day.
1: Uh, Today, I spoke with Olena Palko and Konstantin Andeliano, uh, editors of Making Ukraine, Negotiating, uh, Contesting and Drawing the Borders in the 20th Century, published by McGill's University Press in 2022. Thank you for listening to New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.